Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Wellbeing Designers podcast. I am Reka Deak, your host. This is the last episode of season 1. I can't believe that six months passed by since we published the first episode. I would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being together with me on this podcast journey. I will share more on what's coming after the summer holidays. But first, let's get started with the show today. We got to know during this season some great people who are the first generation of well-being leaders. Usually, they were the very first ones in their organization ever to have the title of head of well-being or something similar. In the past years, especially since COVID, employee well-being got on the top of the agenda for companies worldwide. There is so much information out there, including podcasts with different well-being experts about various well-being methods. However, there is very little insight shared about the people, leaders who are in charge of well-being in organizations and trying to navigate amongst the growing amount of well-being offerings while connecting efforts to business impact and most importantly, create real value for employees. They are the ones whose responsibility is to take care of hundreds, thousands, or ten thousands of people's well-being. They are the ones who keep decision makers and CEOs engaged about the topic of well-being. They are the ones who are proving that employee well-being is a strategic enabler of sustainable performance and business success. They are well-being designers. However, our guest today is exceptionally not a head of well-being. He is an analyst and thought leader specializing in the global talent market and the challenges and trends affecting business workforce around the world. He founded Person and Associates in 2001 to provide associated research and advisory services a business he later sold to Deloitte when it became known as Bersin by Deloitte. In 2019, he launched the George Bersin Academy, the world's first global development academy for HR and talent professionals, and he is currently the CEO of its sister research and advisory firm, the George Bersin Company. By now, most of you know who I am talking about. Our guest today is George Bersin. I got to know his work many years ago, and I remember the aha moment when I watched one of his keynotes. I said, wow, he talks about HR topics in a very strategic way with a fact-based approach. I have a passion for people topics and I always worked in that field. However, I have also a master's in corporate finance, so I love numbers and data. When I was co-organizing a Future of Work Unconference in Switzerland in 2019, there was no question for me that I would like to have Josh there. So I sent him a message to invite him as a keynote speaker. 
this is how we got connected. Today, I invited Josh for the end of season one to have a conversation that puts well-being more into the context of other business and HR topics. Hi, Josh. Welcome to episode eight of the Wellbeing Designers podcast. I am extremely happy to have you here today. And we just discussed, you know, how we know each other. Mm -hmm. We never really met, but we have been in touch more or less since 2019. Yes, Rebecca, it's been quite an experience going through the pandemic and getting to know each other remotely like this, but hopefully we'll meet this year. I would uh, suggest that if you want, we can also have a reflection on the very recent event or experience that you just had last week, the Irresistible sure. 2023. We can also talk about your book afterwards, reflecting on the well-being aspect. We just had about 450 people in Los Angeles at our annual conference, which we call Irresistible. This was the second year. And of course, this year, everybody wants to talk about AI. But the theme that I presented in the keynote was essentially the shortage of talent around the world caused by remote work, hybrid work, the low birth rate, and the shrinking population of working people in most countries. And the fact that, you know, forgetting about AI for a minute, most companies are going to find it harder and harder to hire if they continue to grow in a traditional industrial model where we need more people to grow revenue, because that's the old model. So what I talked a lot about was essentially in the industrial age, and this gets into well-being too, in the industrial age, businesses grew by hiring more labor and human beings were essentially like replaceable parts. Now that we're in the IP and services you know, era of, of the economy, you don't need to hire more and more and more people to grow if you organize the company well, if you take care of people, if you train people, if you develop people, if you create what I call organizational ingenuity. And this is what I talked about at the conference. And so all of these things that we're doing, well-being programs, productivity programs, you know, talent marketplaces, et cetera, are solutions to this shortage of labor. And then, of course, AI is going to be the ultimate solution to that because we're all going to be like super people doing more and more work because of these tools. So that was the theme of the conference. And then, of course, what came out of that were a lot of discussions about how to do all that stuff and the role of culture. And it's interesting, almost every session somehow turned into a discussion of culture, which doesn't surprise me because no matter what is going on in any company, any organization, you know, technical skills, technical proficiencies are never enough. And we've proven that with this research we have, which we can talk about if you're interested, called pace setters, that mm-hmm. taking care of people, taking care of the culture are essential to growth, even if you don't have the most technical skills you need. So anyway, that was what it was about. So it was really an incredible conference. It was the best conference I've ever been to and the best one we've ever done. So next year, if anybody wants to come, sign up now. <laughs> You're fill yeah. And Rekha, you should come. So next year, we'll figure out a way to get you over to California. I'm really happy to come. Thanks for the invite, Josh. 
So basically this happened now, 2023. And then we have also the aspects of your book, which was published 2022, right? And yeah. there you go through the seven secrets of the irresistible organizations. And you just mentioned culture. So basically where you are mentioning well-being the most in your book is really at the culture chapter. So what would you add to that aspect today? You know, if you could rewrite your book, is sure. there anything, you know, that happened? Since I'm not then? ready to rewrite the book yet. I, I think the book is actually really, really, really relevant to everything that I just discussed because the seven secrets or principles in the book are long lasting existential changes that are taking place in business, each of which are difficult and complex. And in fact, you know, when I wrote the book, it took me almost nine years to write the book. So the book wasn't intended to be about the pandemic or the 2023 economy or anything. It's essentially a fundamental set of changes in companies and management. And, you know, culture is one of the chapters because what essentially I talk about in the book is culture trumps rules. And that if you have a certain behavioral culture, you don't need so many rules and regulations. It depends on the industry you're in, of course. But um, And there's lots and lots of examples of that in the book. But the reason it came up this week is we're now well into the, the post-industrial revolution. There's no question in anybody's mind that there's a shortage of talent. There's no question in anybody's mind that we have to develop people and take care of people. There's no question that people want to work in hybrid work. But management doesn't understand that all the time. HR people do. I think HR people have come along this learning journey pretty well through the pandemic, but I don't know if senior leaders have in every company. And I think they're still dragging their feet, forcing people to come back to the office. Like even this morning, my son, who works for Google, had to get up at 4.30 in the morning to drive down to San Jose to go to a mandatory day in the office. And I could tell he was upset because there was no reason for him to go, but it was a mandatory day. So he's going to spend two hours in the car, maybe three hours in the car going down there because somebody decided they want everybody in the office. I don't know. I mean, Google's a great company, but that's just an example of a teeny tiny thing that the organizations have to think about. And it affects well-being and affects productivity, affects everything, really. So that's, that's the reason culture comes up a lot. For the listeners who don't know all the seven secrets, I can just uh, summarize sure. it. First one is teams, not hierarchy. Second, work, not jobs. Third, coach, not boss. Fourth, culture, not rules. Fifth, growth, not promotion. Sixth, purpose, not profit. And seven, employee experience, not output. And then within the culture chapter, you are mentioning basically five elements of the culture, work environment, well-being, how organizations support health, safety, and physical, mental, and financial well-being. Then the third one is inclusion, then recognition and reward, and then flexibility. And I have to tell you something. I really loved your statistics in the book when you were searching for job openings in April 2021 across the world with the title related to well-being. And this was at the end, 55,000 job openings. And I used these statistics recently on two conferences in Europe. In Europe, I think we are a bit behind, you know, compared to Australia, US or the UK in terms of the positions dedicated to well-being. So 
people were guessing much less job openings. I actually disagree with you. I think in Europe, there's a deeper understanding of this issue Mm -hmm. than in the US. (laughs) Because in Europe, you have much more of a somewhat social contract with Mm -hmm. employees in most countries. I was in Amsterdam, I met the queen and the king, and I talked to them about it. And you know, there's much more awareness at the government level of the need to take care of people. The United States, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's dog eat dog over here. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I see what you mean. So uh, probably then the companies need to step up more and create these positions. While in Europe, it's part of the system anyway. So you might not need those positions. uh, Well, the other thing I'm curious about this job of the job of the head of well-being. I think that job used to be a benefits job. Mm-hmm. Now it's probably an HR culture, you know, job. And in some cases, it's a C-level job as a chief wellness officer, a chief health officer, et cetera. Um, because ultimately it's a management problem, not an HR problem or a benefits problem, as you know. So, you know, I think if I went back two years, I'll bet a lot of those well-being people were benefits administrators back then. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely like this. And through my podcast, I have a privilege to talk to those people who have this title. So they are not in the benefits space anymore. And usually what I see is that they are under the chief culture officer or chief diversity officer. So there is a real shift towards that. Well, and there's another interesting topic that that we just wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review. I don't know if it's going to come out or when, but on, on this idea of people sustainability, the sustainability agenda, which is over in the finance department, which deals with environmental sustainability and, you know, water and, you know, mm-hmm. health and those kinds of things is actually connected to HR and the people issues in the company. So I think well-being is going to be part of the overall corporate sustainability agenda in, in companies over time. And that's the argument that we're making, mm-hmm. because if companies are more and more dependent on the innovation and service and creativity and productivity of the individual people, well-being is a financial metric almost of how sustainable your company and your business is Mm -hmm. uh, with all sorts of outcomes, you know, like turnover and stuff that come out of it. So it's come way out of benefits. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. What comes to my mind is the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And recently, like more than a year ago, the IDGs emerged, the Inner Development Goals. Mm -hmm. These are really about how we have to change ourselves in order to change how we live, so to reach the Sustainable Development Goals. Just last month, Gallup announced their latest, you probably saw it, data Mm -hmm. on employee engagement. And employee engagement ticked up just a little bit, which makes sense because we're kind of past the pandemic, but employee stress has skyrocketed. It's the highest they've ever measured it. So, you know, well-being felt, you know, like it was health and safety during the pandemic. Now it's stress and overwork and maybe emotional stress caused by the company or the management or something else. It's the moving target. Really? You also had some further research on the topic when you created the healthy organization maturity model. And that was in 2021 when you published it. Recently, like in May, there was another research published, the Workplace Wellbeing and Firm Performance by the University of Oxford Wellbeing Research Center. And they made similar correlations between the company performance 
and the investment on well-being that you did, especially when we talk yeah. about level three and four of the model. Yeah, when we did it, <clears throat> I mean, Janet Mertens, who led it, and I talked about it in the beginning, and the hypothesis that we had in the very, very beginning was that well-being was a management issue, not an individual health issue. And the research pretty much proved that out. In fact, the funny thing about it was one of the most highly correlated factors in well-being was pay equity, which when we first looked at it, we didn't understand it at all. And then we started doing the research on pay equity, and we realized pay equity has a massive impact on people's sense of well-being. People who feel underpaid or unfairly paid are bringing carrying a big burden around with them every day at work. And it hurts their ability to partner with other people. It hurts their respect for the organization. There's a whole bunch of things that relate to well-being, the healthy organization, that aren't just physical and mental and you know financial health. So, and then so yes, we that turned out to be a really good study, and we've now benchmarked quite a few companies. We created an assessment around it, and a lot of companies have used it to look at the characteristics of the well-being environment in different parts of their organization to see what's strong and what's weak. So yeah, I think it's becoming a pretty well-known fact. I don't know that every CEO thinks about it though. So they do delegate it to somebody else usually to worry about it. You know, the other thing, Rekha, that that I think is relevant here is we're in a weird economy where some industries are slowing down and so the stock market is kind of plateaued a bit and you know CFOs are are wondering about their growth rate and so they're looking for new sources of profit and growth and when they do that they tend to blame the employees for whatever growth problems they have and you remember the Microsoft data a couple of months ago that said that 87% of employees feel they're highly productive but only 17% of leaders believe they're highly productive I mean, that just blew my mind. One of the things we have got to fix is CEOs and CFOs have to understand that growth is dependent on well-being. They can't sacrifice well-being for growth, even though, you know, there are companies that, you know, particularly in China, and I think Elon Musk is, is somewhat of this ilk, that they really think the more hours you work, the better for the company. And I just don't think that's true. I mean, the hmm. data doesn't show that. <laughs> <laughs> what comes to my mind actually is the recent Deloitte survey. They explored this, how much percentage of C-level and managers think that employee well-being increased versus how really employees versus the feel. Employees. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and there is a huge gap. And you know so, what that gets back to, to me is, <clears throat> and I talked about this at the conference, is I, I think leaders at the senior levels of companies are essentially behind, to be honest, in understanding these workplace issues. I think at the mid-levels and the lower levels of the company and the HR department and so forth, we're all very aware of this. But I think senior leaders are under so much pressure themselves, they have their own well-being issues, of course, that they're not necessarily seeing it. And I think that Deloitte Research pointed that out. I think, you know, that's why we also need people like you who can speak this language to explain it to C-level. That's the reason, you know, you, you know what I do. I try not to come across as a pundit or a an advocate. I try to use the data to prove it. Mm. And we go into these projects pretty neutral without an opinion. And then when the data comes back, we just show people what the data says. And 
that's pretty, you can take that to a CFO or a CEO and, and they can't really argue with it. Mm-hmm. I just have to tell you an anecdote. My partner, he's a strategy guy and he read your book after I bought it. And then he said, okay, now I get it. Why, why you like this guy so much? I, I know. <laughs> he, yeah, he talks about HR things in a way that I can relate to it. So. Well, because, you know, I didn't come from HR. I mean, the reason I, I have know. a little bit of a different perspective is because I didn't work in HR when I started doing this. But yeah, that's thank you. That's nice to hear. But I wanted to tell you a bit about, you know, how was the structure of my interviews with well-being leaders, the head of well-beings. So of course, I I don't want to ask you exactly the same questions, but maybe you know your industry analyst view on that. So we always started why well-being is important in the organization. And apparently, you know, we come from a point when companies created already these roles where they are. So it showed that usually the company has been always a caring organization and then what exactly their role was. Do you have any reflections to share? What is your view? I have a little bit of a maybe super enlightened view of this. And that is that if the company is a safe, healthy, developmental, positive, you know, psychologically safe environment, you actually unlock Um, more productivity, more energy, more time, more hours, more effort than you had before. It isn't a matter of of minimizing the negative impacts of well-being. It's it's actually the opposite. It's a matter of maximizing the potential positives and the accelerators. And I know that in the, like our company, we had so much fun at our conference last week. People came back super energized about what we do. And I almost wish I could do that every single day for the people in our company, because I know if they feel excited about their work, they're gonna do exceptional things that we can't even predict. I think well-being isn't an issue of minimizing problems so much. It's, it's also an issue of maximizing energy and inspiring people. So we gotta think about it both ways. That's something I've learned. Work for me, and I think for most people, is what people look for is a way to express themselves and to, you know, meet their personal goals in their life, their personal destiny. And if their job allows them to do that, they're going to work really hard and they're going to like it. If their job is a drag, they're not going to work very hard. They're just Mm going to check out at five o'clock and go home. So well-being is about all of that. What about the role of head of well-being? How do you see that? Well, I think, you know, some of the people I've met, I've met a couple of chief health officers that have that job and other things. It's not just about the benefits. Um, you know, that's part of it. But I think it has to be somebody that can manage that stuff and keep it under control and not make it too complicated, but also somebody that can speak to leadership about management practices, goals, culture, psychological safety, development, pay equity. I mean, I don't see any reason why the head of well-being couldn't go to the head of comp and say, you know, this pay equity issue is affecting our organizational's ability to perform. You know, we need to fix it. I don't care how much it costs. We need to deal with it. And that might mean the facility, the food, the safety, whatever. I mean, this person has to be an advocate for significant amounts of money that have to be spent on different things in the company that may not feel like the CFO's number one priority. So I think this person should have a fair amount of authority, at least some, you know, 
persuasive capabilities and and they get to see the whole big picture you know in a way that you know each of the individual parts of hr and parts of the organization may not see it so i, I think it's a pretty important job i'm glad it's escalated in importance that comes to my mind also your page setter research so that you say that companies who are not siloed but who already have a collaborative culture those are performing better. So this is also something that is really important here that we don't, don't just put there someone to create a program, an extra program. The interesting thing about the pace setter research is we looked industry by industry now at the highest performing companies in each industry. And what you find is the ones that are outperforming are accelerating their distance from their competitors because they're very transformation ready. They're sort of designing their company around change, 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 and they're making it you know, possible to move into new industries or new businesses or new technologies very, very quickly. And part of that is people feeling safe, people feeling that they will succeed, people feeling like the company's taking care of them. And that is another part of the positive side of well-being is when well-being is positive, people are adaptable. People are willing to change jobs, roles, whatever, because they feel like they're being taken care of. When they're burned out and stressed, don't ask them to do something new or they're just going to check out or leave. So there's all sorts of positive reasons relative to transformation too. How do you measure well-being? What would be your ultimate view on this? Because we got really honest and very various reactions on that. We ended up coming with up with 60 or 70 questions to measure different aspects of well-being because it's not just your health. It's, you know, are you do you have a career with the company? Do you feel like you get along with your manager? Do you, are there people you you feel you can work with? Do you feel it's inclusive? I mean, all of these things that are usually somewhere located in HR that affect employee experience actually affect well-being. You're also, your hours, your workload, your flexibility is a huge issue in well-being. You know, can I work at the time and pace that's best for me? And then the benefits and then the physical safety and the mental safety and the emotional safety of the workplace are all part of it. So there's a lot of things to measure. And so the well-being leader has to be able to look at all of that data and then make sense of it. In terms of you know, how to measure the positive implications or interactions or interventions, I think one of the things that affects well-being a lot is confusion. What am I responsible for? What are my priorities? What can I not do because I have to do this versus that? And when the company has too many things going on and there seem to be conflicting priorities and the targets are too high and we're not hitting our metrics and I'm not sure what I should do about it, that creates massive amounts of stress and uncertainty. And so one of the big parts of well-being is the CEO all the way down simplifying the business and making it clear what is important and what's not and constantly communicating that to people. You know, in Microsoft's management model, one of the three things they talk about with managers is creating clarity. What is important and what isn't important? That's a very relaxing thing to hear. When your manager says, here's what's really important, forget about the other stuff, you can take a deep breath and say, Ooh, thank you for telling me that. Now I can relax and stop worrying about this other stuff that's getting on, getting on my nerves. So I think that's another big part of this too, is clarity. And you know, sometimes that's a business issue for the whole company. The company's doing too many things. It's spread itself too thin. And that creates all sorts of well-being issues in the people. So 
Some of this is strategy too. Just a reminder for the listeners who might not know the healthy organization maturity model to go back a bit on that. What yeah. are the levels? So level one is the employee safety that we talked about. This reminds me a bit uh, like, you know, the Maslow pyramid that we yep. need to have the basics, right? We have to feel safe. Then the second one is employee well-being. Yeah, it sounds interesting that it's only the second level of the maturity model, but basically this is about the view of employees as people, focus on well-being experiences, personalization, and the level three is healthy work, work barriers removed, the recognition of performance that you also mentioned. And then level four is really the healthy organization. The holistic view of well-being is embedded into the culture. I think healthy work means forgiveness and flexibility in the work goals in the work environment. So I think one of the challenges in well-being in companies is if you think about the hierarchy, every manager has their own workload that they push down on the people in their team, and then they get pressure from above them and they get pressure from above them. So there's this cascading effect of stress or work practices that gets created at the top. So, you know, many of the things we learned about in that study do come up come up to the CEO and, and sometimes the CFO. I had this meeting a year or so ago with a bunch of very stressed out leaders at a tech company and they wanted to talk about well-being. And these weren't HR people, these were business people. And they told me, well, you know, we grew by 40% last year. You know, we're taking market share from our competitors and we're all completely burned out. Mm. And I said, well, you're doing so well why are you burned out? Why aren't you celebrating? Why isn't there a bunch of recognition? Why aren't you all saying, having parties and going out to lunch? They said, because this year's targets are like 70% growth. And I said, well, who set those targets? And they all look at each other and they're like, I don't know, somebody in the CFO's office set these targets and we're stuck with them. So, you know, there's not much they can do about it. That, that goes up to the top. So I think the business model sometimes has to be discussed. <laughs> <laughs> or what we consider to be normal, you know, that someone yeah. else sets these goals, we have to question that. Hmm. Okay, keeping an eye on our time, I would suggest to move on. You are also a leader in your organization, the Josh Bersin Company. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do about well-being there? And what do you do about your own well-being? So for me personally, I get up really early and I go to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> I so go to bed about eight or nine o'clock and I get up at around four or five and I go to the gym a couple times a week and I go for walks in the morning. I mean, I just have to take some time to myself early in the morning. Um, and then during the day, because I usually work from home, I can go for a walk or stretch my legs or, you know, turn on some music or something to relax during the day. The company, I'll tell you, I think the reason our company is so successful is two things. One is we're very, very careful who we hire, and we make sure that each individual employee is a culture and emotional fit with everybody else. So people really do like each other as human beings. I know that sounds simplistic, but it really does make a difference. By the way, we were at Netflix last week as part of our conference, and that's part of their culture manifesto too, is to hire people that other people like, it sounds silly, but it really makes a big difference. And the second thing is we don't have financial goals. 
Our only, I tell the employees, there's only three things that matter here. Number one is taking care of the clients. Number two is that you're happy as employees. And number three, that we're creating a profit. Obviously, we, we have to grow and create a profit to pay for everything else. And so we don't, we're not sitting around saying, you know, let's grow at 50%, 75%, 100%, whatever. We're growing very quickly, but it's because people feel free to do the right thing for our customers, for our clients, for all you HR people that we're growing. And I think that's worked because we've hired people that like each other and we have very little hierarchy and very little silos. I mean, everybody works on anything that's needed. And some of this is the consulting experience. We have a lot of people that used to be consultants who are used to just pitching in on different projects. We only have about 40 people, so we're not that big. But I, I've learned a lot about it, you know, to keep things simple. And I also spend a lot of time every week reminding people of what's most important so they don't get distracted with the next big project that comes along and think that it's, you know, going to replace everything else we're already doing. So, I mean, those are the basics for us. Thanks for sharing that. You said it's a small company, but basically in every big company, you have such a small team. Every manager, every leader has a small team of people that they work with closely, and you can do the same things there. Even in companies that feel dysfunctional, great leaders, great managers can just reduce the stress. I, when I was at IBM in the 1980s, and IBM was doing very well at the time, I had a manager that shielded us from all the baloney that was going on and he took care of us as a team. I was in a sales team for many years. And he, you know, I think our well-being as a team was fantastic because of him. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was, I, I'm sure there are other parts of IBM that weren't quite like that, but he protected us from it. And good that he also knew then how to keep up his own well-being. The last question of the podcast is, what would be your ultimate advice for future well-being leaders? There's two things that you have to do as a well-being project or product or area owner. One is you have to open your eyes to all the dimensions of the issue. If you read our healthy organization research and you look through the maturity model or, or any of the other studies I'm sure that are out there, you'll become aware that things like pay, development, growth, diversity, inclusion, recognition, recognition is a huge impact on well-being. If nobody ever says thank you for anything you ever do, you do get burned out. So open your eyes and look at all the dimensions of it and find a way to get good information and sense these multidimensional aspects that contribute to well-being. The second is the tough part is now you have to speak truth to power. Now you have to talk to leaders, you have to talk to people, maybe the CFO or whoever, about what the real issues are <clears throat> and feel comfortable raising them in a non-emotional way so everybody knows that you're not just some HR person, you know, trying to make everybody happy all day. And that's the ultimate challenge in the job is translating a lot of these human factor things into business issues that people will pay attention to and will address. And then the actual solutions actually should come from the business. I mean, I don't think you have to design all the solutions. I think you should bring people together and make them make sure they agree on the problems and once they agree on the problems, I think they can discuss the solutions. And mm -hmm. I think that's the job. Very much resonates with some of the podcast guests, how they were really, you know, aiming to bring in well-being into all business processes. So not separately having it as an initiative, but really having it part of the business. Hmm. 
Thanks a lot, Josh. It was a pleasure to have you here today. And it's 8 a.m. or now almost 9 a.m. at your side of the world, right? But now we know that you get up very early. So it I've been up for only... four hours already, five hours. <laughs> so it was a pleasure to talk to you also to hear about last week's irresistible experience about your book and really to have your insights on organizational well-being on this podcast thank you Rekha I hope to see you face-to-face soon this year thank you wishing you a good day Josh This was the last episode of season one of the Wellbeing Designers podcast. We will be back, though, after the summer holidays, end of August, starting with season two. We already have the full lineup for this season with some super interesting guests and exciting conversations. So stay tuned, sign up for our newsletter, which you can do on our website on www.wellbeing.com. Dot design. So you get notified about all the news. We had incredible conversations and feedbacks from you during the past month, and I am really grateful for each of you who reached out. It gives me a tremendous energy to continue to share these conversations. One of my favorite stories is from Anne, who is a well-being lead in the UK. And she told me that she was listening to our new episodes every time when she took the train from Glasgow to Aberdeen. I wish you great summer holidays. To join the movement of the Wellbeing Designers, reach out via LinkedIn or via email. Hello at Rekadeak, R-E-K-A-D-E-A-K dot com. I am keen to hear about your stories, your ideas and feedbacks. Remember, together we can design the future of well-being and make workplaces fit for humans.